So do people know that you are a Christian? Do people know that you are a Christian? I don't want to presume that all of us listening to this message are professing Christians. Maybe you're, you're still checking out the faith. Maybe you're just wondering and, and trying to see this thing called church. And if that's you, that's awesome. We want you to continue to be on that journey. And you're going to have to ask this question and wrestle with it. Why am I not a Christian? And I would just challenge you, ask God to, to show himself real to you. For the rest of us, we have a bunch of questions, though, before us. The first one is that I, I read long ago as a kid, and I, it stuck in my mind. It goes something like this. Is there enough, enough evidence to convict you if you were tried for being a Christian? Have you heard that before? Is there enough evidence if you were in a court of law saying, hey, you're a Christian. You profess to be a Christian. Are you really a Christian? That's a relevant question for many around the world. Lots of people are on trial for their faith. Some are actually dying for their faith. In fact, 13, on average, 13 people today will give up their lives for Christ. By the, the end of this morning, there most likely will be two people who have given their life for Jesus Christ, proclaiming that they're followers of him. That's pretty sobering, right? In the early church, being persecuted was considered a, a badge of honor. Take, for example, Eupolis. Probably none of us have ever heard of Eupolis, right? You didn't wake up and say, I've been thinking about Eupolis today. Well, Eupolis was a Christian in Sicily, in Italy, a deacon and a Bible owner, despite the Roman Emperor Diocletian forbidding the possession of the, the possession of the scriptures of the Bible. And, and Eupolis was actually worried that he might escape persecution, which is probably not on our high list of worries today, right? You're not like, oh Lord, I'm, I hope I don't escape persecution today. Right? That was probably what you didn't wake up thinking. Well, Eupolis thought otherwise. And so you know what he did? He actually stood outside the governor's office and he shouted, I'm a Christian and I deserve to die for Jesus Christ. That was his protest. Now Christians are, have been recently seen protesting other things. That they, they're protesting the fact that they are being persecuted. Eupolis was protesting that he wasn't persecuted. Things have changed a little bit, don't you think? And so when he was ushered before the governor, he was found to have a manuscript of the Gospels. Of course, they didn't have you know, the full canon, all 66 books of the Bible, all published in a, in a book. This is long before the, 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 the printing press. They only had copies, and he had copies of the Gospels. And so the governor asked, where did these come from? Did you bring them from your home? And Eupolis said, I have no home, as the Lord Jesus knows. And so the prosecutor said, read them. So Eupolis began with reading these words, and some of you know them. From Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he turned to another passage. Whosoever will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And the judge interrupted him and said, well, why haven't you surrendered these books? And Eupolis replied, it was better to die than to give them up. In these is eternal life. And whoever gives them up loses eternal life. That's what Eupolis said. And the governor signaled that he had heard enough, and Eupolis got what he wanted. He was subjected to a, a series of horrible tortures. And then he was executed on August 12, 304 A.D., with the Gospels tied around his neck. His last words, repeatedly uttered, were, Thanks be to you, O Christ. It was a prayer. O Christ, help. It is for you that I suffer. Now, does the Bible tell us anywhere that we're supposed to, to deliberately seek persecution? No. We're not supposed to deliberately say, I want to be persecuted. Yet, given the choice, it's better to shout, I'm a Christian! than to hide our testimony from a lost and hurting world. Do you agree with that? Maybe some of you listening today even need to tell those around you, you've never said this at work, that you are a Christian. Now it's going gonna, it's gonna to step up. The, the dial on, the, on, the, the, um, on people watching your life is going gonna, is gonna to increase, isn't it? However, I want to tell you today that shouting I'm a Christian is not the only way to let others know that you are one. In fact, it's probably not the best way to identify yourself as a Christian. The Gospels, which Eupolis initially hid and he actually died for, tell of even a better way to know, to be known as a Christian. So let's turn our Bibles to John 13, 34 through 35. I'm going to invite you to, to into this passage today that God's been... Um, already invited me into, and uh, we're going to see the best way to be known as his followers. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Just two short verses. Maybe some of you even have this memorized. It's a great verse, great couple verses. A new commandment I give to you, that you what? Just as I have loved you, you also are to, again, what does it say? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have Awesome. And may we have such love for one another. You may be seated. We are best known as followers of Jesus when we love one another. When we love one another. This is so important that Jesus emphasized the phrase loving one another three times. And as I've taught you on many occasions, whenever God is saying something three or more times, he's trying to get your attention, right? He's saying, pay attention to this. This is really important. And so Jesus not only repeats these words, love one another, but makes them his top command in his new kingdom. This is what is meant when Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you. You are also to love one another. 
the command to love one another was not new because it actually had been laid down centuries earlier. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, by Moses. However, the newness of this command did not have to do with the chronology of the command as much as the Christ-likeness of the command. Loving one another leveled up after Christ came into this world. He leveled it up. And so uh, we need to know how to love one another. But before we do, I, I want us to correct some misunderstandings about love. Five, I have five of them actually today. Five misunderstandings about love. And then we're going to learn how to love one another. So here's the five misunderstandings. First of all, number one, love comes naturally. Love comes naturally. There are many people who think that love comes naturally and easily. And, and that it's in our nature to love. However, this is not true. I don't know about you, but I'm naturally selfish. I'm trying to overcome my selfishness. Most of day, our days are spent out for looking after number one. That's us. Even when we're acting loving, it often masks our selfish desires to be well thought of or for people to, to do what we want them to do, to think well of us. And this is why Jesus actually has to make the call to love one another a commandment. It's not just an idea, is it? It's not like, hey, I got, I got this really great idea. Hey, love one another. No, it's a command. It's in the imperative. Love one another. This means that if you call yourself a Christian and you choose not to love other Christians, then, well, we're, we're disobeying Christ, right? You're, in fact, not loving Christ when you neglect to love one another. And this does not mean that obedience equals love. You can obey without love. In fact, in this story, the verses just prior is the episode where, where Judas, he betrays Jesus. And do you remember in, in, um, in John, look at, look at John 13, verse 27, and what Jesus says to Judas. And then after he had taken the morsel, so Jesus had given them this piece of bread to show that he was the one who was going to betray him. And Satan entered into him, that's, that's Judas, and Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. That's a command. In other words, Judas is obeying Jesus in this way. He did it quickly. And yet, of course, we would all say that Judas was not loving. You can do the right thing without having the right heart. One full of love. Which raises the question, what does it really mean to love somebody? I heard somebody tell me long ago that love is doing what is best for the other person, even at great expense. Love is doing what is best for the other person, even at great expense. That type of love doesn't come naturally. It actually comes supernaturally. It comes from God. The writer of the Gospel of John also wrote another letter. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, this is this helpful instructional. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. Like, decades later, after Jesus had left, and, and John was at times alone, he's still stuck on this phrase, love one another, right? It hasn't left him. It doesn't leave us our whole Christian life. And then it says, but then John explains further. He says, but love is, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God. 
and knows God. Love doesn't come from within ourselves, but it comes from God himself. Some of you who've been trying to will yourself to love that really difficult person in your life, and it really isn't working if you're being honest. Could I just ask you today to remember that love comes from God? Why don't then you ask God? Say, God, would you give me your love for this person? Not even just help me to love them. Would you give me your love for this person? Try that this week. Talk about it in your small group. See how it goes. Ask your small group to pray for that. There's a second misunderstanding about love. Love doesn't come naturally, but the second misunderstanding is this. Love doesn't have favorites. You've probably heard your whole life, well, love, love's, love's impartial. Well, I beg to differ. Love doesn't have favorites. This sounds really good, but it actually undermines love and is unchristlike. What do I mean by this? First, notice that Jesus had a favorite. We know that Jesus loved all of his followers, but there was this special one that he, he cared about. It, it seemed to be elevated in his life. He had a greater place in Jesus' heart. Look again at John 13, verse 23. You'll see what I'm talking about. It says, One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at the table close to Jesus. Now, we know that who that person was. It was actually the author of this, this gospel. It was John, the Apostle John himself. He didn't want to be proud about this. But he, he's, he clearly says that this is, this is the disciple that Jesus loved. Richard Lenski, the commentator, observes this. The hearts of most were near to Jesus, yet young John's was near. John was probably the youngest disciple. Which is such a reminder. Any young people here today, Jesus really, he really loves you. That psalm, you know, Jesus loves me, does not get old. John was like a son to Jesus who broke through the usual invisible barrier of personal space and, and hung on Jesus. And, and you see, to love is to have favorites. Say, John, I've heard the opposite my whole life. Well, what about marriage? I liken this to how marriage works. Lori and I love each other in a way that is, is not expressed in the same way that we love others. We became exclusive so that we could become inclusive. In fact, out of our love, we bore four children. And I'm not just talking about sexual love, and I've totally grossed out my children right now, right? Our love for each other has helped us to love people in more profound ways. I've thought about this. We've been able to care for people, our, our neighbors, in ways that I certainly couldn't have done alone. Uh, we have been able to counsel people together. We've been able to be more loving and inclusive of others because we have been exclusive. And so I want to address an issue that almost every church and school, I'm sure at school you face this, and, and teams face this, it's the... It's the accusation of cliques. Temple has cliques. You don't know everyone here as well as you know some. You're closer to others. You sit together. We have seasoned singles here at Temple who go together at some local restaurant. 
And that's a good thing. Praise the Lord. And I'm sure if you wanted to go and be with them, they would, they would make room. In the past, we've had groups of young adults who go and have a nice home-cooked meal after church at someone's home. I mean, maybe that can happen again sometime in the future as we move out of COVID restrictions. We have groups that know more about the inner workings of the church than others. We call them leaders, staff, and deacons, and elders. We've intentionally created small groups who meet together weekly to discuss God's word and see how it applies to our life, and we pray together. And we believe these groups, rather than becoming insulated cliques, actually help people love outsiders outside the group. I'll give you an example. Some people may be having a hard time at work, and they go to their small group and say, could you pray for me how I can love my coworkers? Do you see how being exclusive helps you to be inclusive? We have hundreds of other cliques in our church called families. Those are God-ordained, God-made groups, right? The problem is, when we're friendship-sufficient and we don't care about those outside the group, that's when the problem arrives. This leads to people feeling they're left out. And this is where we can continue to grow as a church, especially as we come out of COVID and, and people are feeling alone. We need to help them feel that they're part of us. But the problem isn't being exclusive. We need exclusivity because we don't have the time to be equally loving to all. And being a friend to all, you'll be a friend to no one. In fact, if you don't have a group that you can appropriately be more intimate and loving with, you won't be good at sharing that love with others. And so Jesus had a click. He had 12 disciples, and we should be thankful because of those disciples. He formed the church, and, and you and I have, hundreds and hundreds of years later, have become a part of the family of God. Their love for one another attracted many people to Christ, and eventually those 12s were scattered to the four ends of the earth to spread the love of Christ. And we must do the same, but it all starts by us forming into groups. So, one of the applications today is, if you're not part of a small group, then, then talk to Pastor Jason. Jason was up here playing earlier, if you don't know who he is. Or, or you can email at info at templebaptistchurch.ca. We'd love to connect you with a small group. I've witnessed many times that that exclusive love actually helps people care and love one another. So, love does have favorites. A third misunderstanding is this, that you must feel like loving others. You must feel like loving others. Many think that you must feel like loving the other person. Again, loving others is a choice to do what is best for the other person. There are many times you don't, let's be honest, right? You just do not feel like loving this person. Is this just me? But you still do what's best for them. At that moment, you may be loving them more than if you did feel like you, you're, you're in great relationship with them. John 13, 21 makes this clear. What is Jesus? Look at it. Look at John 13, verse 21. After saying these things. Now, just to give you context, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. We're going to come back to that. Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and yet he taught and he loved people. I'm going to use the word to death, his own death. Peter in the story promised to love Jesus until death. And, and Peter says in verse 37, jump down to verse 37, that he would lay down his life for Jesus. But we know that sadly, good intentions in a secure room after a good meal doesn't matter as much when you're in a, in a dark garden and there's guards coming at you with swords, right? Feeling like you are loving may not be loving at all. Maybe you came here today with a grudge for something somebody did for you. Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it was just recently. And you're having a hard time. And you're like, I can't love them because I don't feel like I love them. Do what is best for them anyways. That is loving with the love of Christ. May may I remind you that Jesus did not feel like loving his enemies. In that garden, just a few minutes later, didn't he say, Father, take this cup from me? He He was sweating drops of blood. He didn't just go by his feelings. But he went to the cruel cross. And in that act, he showed ultimate love. So ask God to help you love when you don't feel like it. And he will. Encourage one another. Go to your small group this week and tell them about, hey, I, I, I took that, that promise of God that if I just do, I act in love, even though I didn't feel like it. And he helped me to gain a love for that person. I'm sure there'll be great testimonies of that. Yet this does not mean, I want to tell you, I just want to clarify, this does not mean that you turn a blind eye to sin, which is the fourth misunderstanding. Love means ignoring the truth. All we need is love, right? It's a psalm many years ago. Notice we also need truth. Notice when Jesus was asked about who would betray him, he revealed who it was. In fact, he could not have just, he could have just kept the whole betrayal bottled up, right? Could have done that. But instead, in verse 21, he unloads the burden. He tells the truth of who's going to betray him. Love means telling the truth. Now, some of you may have still a nagging question, the question of truthfulness of Jesus' statement. How is this new, right? He talks about this in this commandment in verse 34. The commandment to love your neighbor as yourself was written nearly 1,500 years ago. In Leviticus 19.18, as I said earlier. That command is not new because nothing like that had never been said before. Its newness is bound up only with a new standard. As I have loved you. Those are the, that's the key phrase. But also with the new order, it both mandates and exemplifies. In other words, those five little words, as I have loved you, is our difference maker. We must love as Jesus loved. And to love like Jesus is to love those who betray you, who misunderstand you, who deny you, leave you, and it includes telling the truth. That's the type of love that Jesus wants us to have. Telling the truth in love may be the most important loving thing you can do this week. Maybe at school, at work, you have to stand up for the truth and do so in a loving way with the right tone. It will help with the fifth misunderstanding. It's one that's really become popular lately. You hear it around June. 
Love is love. Right? We hear it all the time. Love is love. This is the belief that any form of love is acceptable. As long as people love each other. However, this is so subjective. If an abuser says that they love another person but keeps on hurting them, is that love? No way. Instead, we must learn that love isn't love, but God is love, right? That's what John goes on to say in his letter in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Listen to these words from, again, John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 4, 8. Some of you know this verse. You've memorized it. It's a great verse to have in your heart. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not, what? Know God. Again, there's that difference maker. Because God is love. God is coming to their lives through the Holy Spirit. And enables them to love. Rebecca McLaughlin in her excellent book, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. Someone gave this book to me and it's outstanding. I commend you, especially if you are a parent of a, of a teenager or a young adult, to read this book. And it was a reminder that the designer of love should also be the definer of love. God is the designer. So how can we know the designer's definition of love? How can we know that God is love? Well, Jesus actually answers this a few minutes later that night after declaring he's the only way to the Father. And goes on to say in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So only Jesus helps us to truly know what true love is. If you want to know what true love is, it's not on Netflix. It's in the Gospels. And it's reading about Jesus. I challenge you, read the Gospels. At face, take them at face value. And you will be enthralled with who Jesus is. The love that Jesus gave by laying down his life for us is the standard of love. That's a high standard. In fact, that's the ultimate standard, isn't it? In just a moment, we will explore how we can live up to that standard with the help of and empowerment by the Holy Spirit. But I do want to clarify what is often confusing because the definition of love in our culture is something different, isn't it? Nowadays, there's a belief that as long as people feel in love with each other, we should not only tolerate their actions, but recognize them and we should legitimize them. Rebecca McLaughlin speaks to this as one who struggled with same-sex attraction her whole life, but is, is a Christian now and is married to a man. And she says, far from being against same-sex love, the Bible calls us to love people of our own sex very deeply, not in a sexual way. This love transcends sexual love. And we live love that very deeply, which means sacrificing our wants and desires for the sake of another. That is the definition of Jesus' love that is demonstrated completely when he laid down his life on a cross for, for you and for me. This is why holding up Jesus to our culture, I believe, is the only way that we'll be able to overcome. This is, this is the fight of the culture war. It's Jesus' love. He defeats it because he's like, 
I will lay down and I will sacrifice any of my desires in my flesh for the sake of others. Has he not done this for you and for me? So how do we love one another? Quickly, three ways. Three ways how we can love one another. Number one, serve others completely, even when it's awful and awkward. Look what it says back in John 13, verse 1. Go back to John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, what does it say? He loved them to the, to the end. He didn't go like 85%. He loved them to the very end. It was completely Jesus loved his disciples till the end. Jesus loved his disciples until death did he part. He loved them completely. His love persevered even when it was awful, with smelly and dirty feet. And then as he washed his disciples' feet, and it got kind of awkward, didn't it? Right? If you've ever had your feet washed, it can get kind of awkward. He is the master, took the form of a lowly servant. And he served and loved people completely, even when it was awful and awkward. And I bet you have somebody in your life right now that you have to serve, and it's awful. It's awkward. Jesus is calling us to love one another as he did for us. Again, look at verse 14. This is the standard. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, I'm at the end of the service. We're not going to have a whole bunch of foot washing today. But how can you serve one another when it's awkward? When it's awful? Jesus did. It's persevering and completing love of Christ isn't finished yet in the text. We not only love one another like Christ did for us by serving others completely, even when it's awful and awkward, but also when we are to provide for others, even when betrayed. This is what Jesus did. Look at verse 21 through 30. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed by Judas, and yet he still washed Judas' feet? Judas hadn't left yet. And then he feeds him. He takes care of Judas's basic needs. And in this vein, to love like Jesus, we need to provide for one another. Maybe you've been betrayed. How can you provide for them, that person that hurt you? You may not feel like it. We already covered that. Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross, which is why he asked the Father to take that cup of suffering from him. But he still did it, and he provided for us a way of salvation. Amen? So we're supposed to serve one another completely, provide for others, and then lastly, we're supposed to sacrifice for others even when denied. Peter was inquisitive. Love Peter. He's a great great disciple because he was a learner. That's what a disciple is. They're a student, a learner. In verse 36 of chapter 13, Peter goes, Lord, where are you going? We just had a great meal. 
Peter also declared of his loyalty in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my down my life for you now. This is the type of sacrificial and loyal friendship we all wish to have, right? Like, wouldn't you love to have a friend who's like, hey, can I go with you wherever you go and I'll lay down my life for you? It's great and it sounds amazing until we know the rest of the story. And just in a few minutes later, an hour or two later, Peter is denied not just once, but twice, and three times that he never knew Jesus. Peter struck out, and yet Jesus still loved Peter. He sacrificed and he died for him, just as he did for us. My friends, my hope is that loving one another is not nebulous, but in our service and provision and sacrifice, we will love one another. It is, in fact, our love for one another that's the greatest witness for the Lord that we belong to Jesus than shouting, I am a Christian, even if you need to still do that at times. So how are we going to specifically love one another this week because Christ loved us? There's a song many years ago we sang, and they'll know we are Christians by our what? Our love. Let's pray. God, I speak as one trying to grow in this, this great commandment of loving one another. It is the chief marker that identifies us as your believers, as your followers, as your children. And God, would you help us this day to love one another? Maybe it starts even as we walk out this room, maybe to pray for each other, to, to speak a, a kind word, an encouraging word. Maybe it's a call today, something this week where we have to serve one another when it's awful and awkward and to provide one another when they, people they betrayed us. To sacrifice when we've been rejected and denied. Lord, help us to do this. We pray through the Holy Spirit. And if you agree with this and can say, you're not ready yet, but God help me, please say amen. Amen?